This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mayen. And I'm Luca Levitz-Mebre. And our topic this week is... For second annual, because... No, that's not second annual, it's the second biannual. I'm bad with the calendar dates and stuff, but it is for the second year in a row where we'll be talking about the changes and new APIs you can use when you bump up your uh, deployment target on iOS app. So this is the iOS 11 deployment target episode. Nice. And yes, it is the second annual. You were right okay, the first I, time. Ah, <laughs> I wasn't sure. Like I said, it's late and dates with a bright, a bright, a bright, brain fried. See, I'm, I cannot speak. How wow. am I supposed to do this podcast now? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but first, we have some follow up. Yes, we do. So remember in episode 84, I was trying to reimagine what CarPlay could be. And one of the main complaints I had in my multiple CarPlay episodes that was that third-party navigation apps were not supported. And as we discussed in great lengths, uh, iOS 12 added that. And I was able to finally experience Waze Sways? Waze? I forgot how it's pronounced. But they, no, kidding aside, I finally... Uh, Google and the Waze team was able to release the uh, CarPlay update for iOS 12 and I was able to use it. It's quite a cool app and it's, you still get the feel of uh, Waze in CarPlay while still getting the same experience of CarPlay but my first experience with it is not that great. So it was, since I was not in a need of using it, I was using it on uh, my way back from Trois-Rivières back to Montreal. So uh, during that uh, highway ride between the two cities, uh, the app crashed multiple times. And I wouldn't realize it because uh, sometimes I have a tendency to just like go back to my either music app or Overcast to see, especially I do that especially in Overcast because uh, podcasts are long. So I want to know where am I in the broadcast of, the epi- of that episode. And I would stay on that screen for a couple of minutes and after switching back to Waze, it would reset my trip information. It would like completely restart the experience. So it seems that it was crashing kind of in the background. And then it was a pain in the butt because I had to re-enter everything. But at least since I was driving to my home, uh, I can only say drive to my home. So that was quite easy. But the fact that it crashed twice because I did that twice in the same route uh, was a bit uh, disappointing. Hopefully it is bugs of Waze and not iOS 12, but since it's a new API, I wouldn't be surprised there's a couple of bugs that needs to be fixed. So hopefully the next few version of Waze the app and iOS 12 would help prove the reliability of this new API. But just looking at it in my small, uh, ignoring those crashes, it is quite nice to have third-party navigation apps in CarPlay. I do want to point out that you did mention that you used it on the way back from Trois-Rivières, but you didn't actually come and see me in Trois-Rivières, and I still have something to give you that I got you in Japan, so next time you're in town, please come and get it. That is true, that is true. We Uh, even have a Starbucks in walking distance of my apartment now, so we can go drink a pumpkin spice latte together if you come before the end of October. Uh, Yes, Uh. I would like to note in my defense that last time I went to Tuavia, I was I was not trying to avoid Yannick. I was just quite busy. Uh, so, of course, every time I try to go and I'm not that busy, I always try to call you and you know that. Okay. Uh, is that <laughs> it for your follow-up? It is it before we do a podcast divorce or something live on this episode. I would never do that to you. <laughs> uh, 
episode 97 oh. follow-up as you may know last episode was episode 97 and i gave my long-awaited alexa review and of course amazon waited until the week after uh we did my review to release a quote redesign of the alexa app uh <laughs> which is great timing <laughs> um luckily question mark uh i find that a lot of the uh the coverage that I found on the internet about this update was overstating the degree to which it was updated by quite a lot. Uh, to me, it seems like they changed the colors in the app and that's about it. Like not much has functionally changed about the application. However, listener David Ashby wrote in to say that the update added an implicit everywhere multi-room audio group uh, automatically and then quickly retracted that because we weren't actually sure if it was added by the update or if he had just added it on the desktop and forgot about it or something like that. So it's unclear. Um, but for the most part, not much has changed in the uh, Alexa app redesign. Oh, fuck. I just triggered it. I'm going to press the mute button. There we go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Well, I, I better stop talking about it because I can only reach one of the three mute buttons from here. But um, yeah, so the app update was a bit overrated uh, in all the coverage, but that's no big deal. Uh, one thing that I do want to clarify is that I talked about, um, they were talking about Wi-Fi simple setup. And I wasn't too sure about what that meant. And I did a little bit more research. And basically what it means is that uh, devices that integrate with the Amazon Assistant, which I'm not going to name, uh, can basically sign up to get credentials from that library via your Amazon account. So it's to help other companion devices, not other Echoes, uh, connect to the Wi-Fi. Because apparently the Echo Wi-Fi connection thing was supposed to be working the whole time, even though it has never worked for me anyway. Um, so, eh, it, it's not as cool as I thought it was going to be. I would just like the feature, the actual Wi-Fi feature in the Echo to be more reliable. But until that happens, uh, I guess this is what we have. Uh, another cool thing is that today I got an email from Amazon in the mail, and it says that French-Canadian Alexa is on the way. Developers can now submit French-Canadian voice models for their Alexa skills, uh, which means that Probably by the time the new Echoes are shipping, we should have French Canadian Alexa. When are, when are those shipping? I believe they are in November or December. Last year it was December, but this year I believe it's November. Okay, so you can pre-order them now. Yeah. Ooh, mm -mm -mm -mm, that is quite tempting. I was quite uh, happy when I saw that, uh, and I guess I'll wait for it to ship, and my might need to add something to my Christmas shopping list. Yeah, it will definitely depend on how good the skill support is. Uh, I imagine stuff like, um, well, technically, Hue doesn't need the Hue. Well, yeah, since it's a smart home device that's recognized by the ecosystem, you don't actually need to install a skill for that, I believe. Um, like, the skill you install doesn't need to support the language. That's what I mean. Um, but there are a bunch of other things. So basically, yeah, we're going to see how skill support turns out. And that is probably going to be the deciding factor for which assistant is the one to get here in Quebec. Okay. I told you a little earlier before we started recording that I have some surprise follow-up. Yes, I'm afraid. It's about one of our favorite mobile payment platforms in the whole entire world. Ooh, it's on the topic that never dies. I'm surprised. I should have thought about that. 
So as of today, Apple Pay can now be used in CVS pharmacies in the U.S. And as you may remember, if you are a longtime listener to the show, CVS was previously a participant in the MCX alternative mobile payment system, also known under the name Current C, which was backed by Target and Walmart at the beginning when Apple Pay had just come out. Um, and a couple years ago, I think two years ago, uh, MCX shut down because nobody was using it because it was a terrible product. And... Uh, these stores that had banded together to create this alternative mobile payment system were just stubborn and refused to bring back contactless terminals into their retail locations. And now CVS is one of the first big three to actually let Apple pay back in. And Tim Cook made a statement today talking about like how great it is that they're finally adopting Apple pay. I bet they secretly wanted like mock them in their press release or something because it's unacceptable that they've waited this long. Uh, but speaking of unacceptable for waiting this long, uh, Target and Walmart have yet to actually support Apple Pay. And I know this bothers my dad because my dad is a trucker and he goes to the US a lot and he can't use Apple Pay at Walmart whenever he's around there. And they tend to largely be where he goes because he has a giant ass truck and there are not very many places with parking lots big enough to park those trucks. Um, so yeah, uh, Progress is being made in the currency world uh, one step at a time, one out of three down. We're going to keep on the lookout to see when Target and Walmart give up on yeah. their horrible idea. Even Walmart kind of doesn't support it, which always surprises me. But I remembered that their U.S. Uh, department was also being in MCX. So I'm not surprised that the Canadian side of the business is not uh, supporting it. But makes me sad still here. That's it for my secret follow-up, so now we can go into the main topic. Before we go, I would like to note that it has been a while since we had Apple Pay follow-up. And also regarding this topic, I was also looking at Apple Pay Cash, and still there is no news for it in Canada. Which, also while uh, trying to see what was the developer the developer stuff you can do with Apple Pay Cash, I kind of realized, because Apple says it in like the small details, that their Apple Pay, Apple Pay Cash stuff is back bound of the bank. So maybe I guess that's why it's not Canada. But I digressed. And f- for more for more details on Apple Pay Cash, uh, you can go listen to recent episodes of Upgrade. I believe they talked about it on the last two weeks of Upgrade, uh, like why Apple Pay Cash isn't in other countries. So if you want more details on that, go listen there. Oh, I'll, I'll do it because I'm so late on my podcast. I didn't know about those two episodes. But yes, so like I said in the intro of this episode, this week I will be talking about iOS 11 and deployment target. And as you may be familiar with some of our past episodes, this episode is a clear follow-up of episode 72, which was aptly named iOS 10 deployment target. So around the same time last year, I explained what were the new features you might have forgotten from the iOS 10 announcement, especially as a developer. Um, these dif- these features became available if you were to follow the recommended Apple strategy of supporting the previous OS and the current one inside Ion application. Um, of course, you can take advantage of those functionality the same way you could take uh, advantage of the iOS 12 functionality right now by uh, making it conditional in your code to say that it just works on iOS 12 devices. But for some reason, sometimes it, it is easier to just wait for all your user base to be on uh, the appropriate uh, minimum OS version to take care of those. And usually this is around the time that the new OS 
arrives that you bump it up so this is a good time to talk about that so before i go on ios 11 i would just like to do a, a quick recap of what i talk in ios 10 so i've talked about a couple of new apis that will help you improve your user experience like ui feedback generator to drive the uh, taptic engine uh, the, the Taptic Engine, also some of the new uh, UI kit, UI view property animator and UI uh, view ani animating, which is more or less a fully interactive, interruptible and reversible animation API. We talked a bit also about core data, which we'll talk again today, and some of the new measurement APIs and uh, convention unit that uh, Foundation has added. And last but not least, our beloved friend, the SK Store Review Controller, uh, which is funny why it's also back on uh, the iOS 11 list because since iOS 11 shipped, it is now fully required. Uh, when it shipped on 10.3, uh, Apple was tiptoeing about the requiredness of the, and the mentoriness of it. And now it is part of the Apple review guidelines although also, it's not really enforced that well to be honest but, but. yeah like a lot of the uh, guidelines it is uh, not enforced like a good example would be like spammy and marketing -y, uh, push notifications but it is still considered quote-unquote required uh, for ios 11 so th that's the kind of type of episode that will go again uh, today with uh, some of the topic with the topic that will relate mostly to ios 11 and up technologies before we go on iOS 11 and up technologies, we have to talk about something big that was announced last year, and you might have not, you might have forgotten because your app was still compatible with iOS 10, and it is the 32-bit support. By bumping up your iOS deployment target to iOS 11, Xcode will stop compiling an, a 32-bit slice for your app and for your framework. So of course, uh, for a specific reason, if you still need a 32-bit slice, you are still forced to support iOS 10 because the second you move to iOS 11, since no devices are 32-bit uh, on iOS 11, uh, Xode will not compile the slice. Now that this uh, PSA that, a, uh, that has been quite public because a lot of apps disappear from the store has been done, let's move to our good friend uh, UIKit. Uh, UIKit got a lot of nice new features. Um, I think the two main ones, and it, if you recall correctly, uh, iOS 10, uh, 11 was the big iPad year. And the big iPad year was driven by those two UIKit functionality. The first one is drag and drop, which is mainly based on by a UI drag interaction and UI drop interaction. Those are the two objects you can add to views to control what can be dragged inside this view and all of the uh, interaction. So and this is why it's named interaction because everything that is related to a drag is driven by the subject and it's delegate that you can implement. And the same thing applies to UI drop interaction. And the gist of it is imagine you have a list. So uh, of course, a lot of drag, a lot of drag and up happens mostly for free in UI collection in UI table view. But for my example here, let's just go back to a list of items on screen on the screen. That is not a UI collection view nor a table view. You can specify that each element is draggable, so each element will have their own UI drag interaction uh, object. And then if you have another view that is kind of the drop location, only that view container would contain a UI drop interaction. If you have multiple drop location and each of them have different behaviors, you will have 
each location will have a different UI drop interaction instance that is properly configured uh, to receive uh, drops. Like I said, a lot of UI controls from UIKit gets drag and drop for free. I named the two big ones, the collection view and the table view. Of course, if you want to drag and drop text in text field or text view, a lot is done for free and uh, web views. Uh, I was trying to look at the documentation and with the, the deprecation of UI web view, it's unclear if it's also in UI web view, but I am sure it is in WK web view. Because Apple assumes that a lot of their U of the developers will implement drag and drop in the collection view and table view, Apple have, have created two new delegates that are drag and drop delegates specifically uh, built up for uh, collection and table view. So they take they take the typical UI drag interaction delegate or drop the drop interaction delegate and they augment it to make it easier to use with a table view or a collection view usually with a drag interaction you kind of have to do like not it targeting the it testing but you need to define like this region is available and for a table on a collection there's a lot of more better there's better apis that will require you to use the uh, index path and all that stuff so there's a lot of boilerplate code that apple has implemented in those uh, to make your life easier when you want to customize drag and drop in those two lists controllers uh the next like i said the next point after drag and drop was this uh new files integration so uh the files app got kind of rewritten all over um with the additional support of ui document browser view so if you recall correctly in uh, files app you have kind of this finder like experience within the sidebar you have all of your local and cloud-based storage option uh, you could have dropbox for example you could have of course icloud drive uh, an app can define their own storage location a good example of that is the iwork suite of apps where they define the uh, web dev as a as a content storage all of these can also be put in your app and the same user experience that you have in files app can be brought to your app by using ui document browser view controller um, it is quite simple to use uh, of course there's a lot of customization to make sure that it fits with the look of your app but uh, the main user interaction and experience of it is driven by apple and bad that view this directly and i've seen a couple of apps that i think one of the good example i have on my ipad that uses this is the uh, pspdf kit their uh, reader app uh, the pdf i think uh, let me look quickly there. PDF Viewer, excuse me. Uh, their PDF Viewer app also supports uh, the new, the recently new API where you can do open and uh, save in place. Uh, and they also uh, base their uh, Finder view on this new UI document uh, browser view controller, which creates a quite a nice interaction. I also believe the new version of Ferrite uses it so you can import and edit audio files from various sources and it do, does it support the the new open and save in place interaction too i'm pretty sure it does oh nice that's a quite a quite nice improvement to ferrite i wonder if it was part of their uh 2.0 the big 2.0 release yeah i think it, it is oh nice nice i haven't looked at it since uh they uh, did move to the big 2.0 so 
that's mainly it for uh, this file interaction. Of course, if you were already using the old view controllers, because in the past there were all Apple is strongly suggesting you to move to them. And for the user experience, this is way nicer uh, because in the past you did add to, uh, you could specify um, the location. So you can have a, a specific, uh, you could have a view controller that was to sh only show the remote location. So only the cloud storage uh, look, document providers. But now with this, it can give it for the iPad and also for the one that are app based, like I said, with iWork. And uh, now we'll go in some of the small tweaks in uh, UIKit. And uh, one of the big ones were the addition of large navigation title in uh, UIKit. That is kind of this new aspect and the new look of iOS, uh, starting iOS 11. And there's... Well, it's like iOS 7 and 8 sort of had a little bit of that. But now it's everywhere in 11. That's I think that's your point, right? Yes, I think. In 7 and 8, it was rare, but now this adoption of uh, this kind of the headline or news, like news title. Yeah, at the time, I called it the New York Times layout because it uh, feels very much like a newspaper. And it was originally just in music, but then news sort of got on that. And now this year, sort of everything has that, even stocks. Yeah, yeah. So I think in iOS 7 was the first big push where most of the... Uh, stock apps would have it in on your phone and on your iPad, so on iOS. And now it's also available to developers. So you can uh, take your own UI navigation bar and set prefers large title to true. And then you just get large title as everywhere. Also, this behavior can be defined in your UI navigation item. So if a specific uh, view controller in your view hierarchy, in your, excuse me, in your navigation stack wants to change the mode, uh, you can also use UI navigation item dot large title display mode. So each view controller can set on their navigation item which mode it wants, either automatic, ever. There's a couple of settings on that. Also part of that, there's two new behaviors that were different from the past. Uh, you can use uh, the search controller can be assigned to the navigation item too because uh, the search bar is now the default look sh should be is it is that it should be set in the navigation bar. Same for the uh, pull to refresh the mechanism from Apple. There's uh, the first time uh, the, when you add it to your view, it gets automatically put in the navigation bar. And if you want to have a specific search controller per view controller. Uh, by saying it on a UI navigation item dot search controller will do the job correctly. Do you know if that's what Overcast uses in their search and refresh navbar thing? Because it's very unreliable on iOS 12, and I was wondering if it was the same thing. That is a good question because I remember Marco was complaining about it. Uh, one of the behavior that I don't know if you can change, uh, but in Overcast you. It doesn't, it doesn't hide when you start scrolling the list, which if you go in settings, for example, you realize that if you start scrolling, you can, the, the navigation bar can shrink. I wouldn't be surprised that it's something you can customize. Uh, but it's not something I looked at, uh, if that behavior was customizable. But, uh, I know Marco was complaining quite heavily on Twitter about UI search controllers. So I wouldn't be surprised that because he's using the Apple API, but I guess, just go look at Marco's Twitter and you have a better answer than my answer right now. 
regarding this scrolling behavior, uh, Apple is resizing at the navigation bar. So all of the content that I just mentioned, so the large title, if you use a search controller with search bar inside the navigation bar and also with the pull to refresh mechanism, all of this makes the navigation bar bigger. So your content has to adjust properly to make sure it doesn't, you don't have hidden content by the bar. So of course, our good friends, the safe areas are here to save us. When Apple resize the navigation bar, of course, it updates the safe areas. And if you attach the safe areas, you will be okay. And then it will just give you more space or less space, depending on the current situation. So all the code that you wrote in iPhone OS 3 that minuses 44 pixels, ditch that shit right now. <laughs> you, let's be honest, you should have ditched that long time I know. ago. Hopefully right now you're either looking at the UI view controller top layout guide or top guide. I know they had a weird name before, uh, but now you should be looking at UI view safe areas uh, layout guide, uh, which... Now that you're mentioning that, Yannick, we'll talk quickly about the safe area, but not too much. Because if I, if you recall correctly, a couple of episodes after we did the iOS 10 deployment target, I reviewed, I did an episode about reviewing my latest purchase, which was the iPhone 10. Which at the end of it, I had a segment about how to develop UI interfaces for the iPhone 10, considering the notch, the rounded corners, and the omen indicator, and most of it is regarding uiview.safearea-layout-guide or uiview.safearea-and-sets. Um, so all of this is to say that those safe area now declares, the small summary is it declares a safe region of the screen where you can draw your own content. Uh, of course, you use the layout guide if you use your to layout or use the insets and safe area insets did change if you want to be notified when the insets did change if you do manual calculation. Um, also regarding the safe area, it's a, something I didn't mention in that episode that is also quite interesting and useful. And it's about the difference, the different behavior of the uh, content insets on UI scroll. So there's two new properties, the content insets adjustment behavior and the uh, adjusted content inset, because now uh, you don't need to fight the system with the content inset. Because depending on where the... Um, scroll view was set it might not be inserted by the system using the public property so let's let's say that you're on navigation and in previous os's i would try to start your content just below the end of the navigation because you want your content to scroll under the bar but you don't want to be hidden by the bar so apple fixes that and of course by using those two properties you can either disable this uh, automatic adjustment and also adding adjustment with the other property and you might have already required putting some values because this was a default behavior when you were compiling with the iOS 11 SDK. So if you move to Xcode 9 already, of course, I hope you are on Xcode 9, uh, a lot of this behavior got enabled because you're compiling with the latest SDK. So you might have already have add a lot of if available or just a lot of like conditional statement in your code to detect oh if i'm on ios 11 i should make sure that i disable this behavior or tweak this behavior so my look on ios 10 and 11 are the same and now that your code base is all ios 11 you it is a good time to go clean that out and make sure you have a tidier code base regarding scroll view content and set adjustments 
Last but not least, uh, scroll view is back and there's a couple of nice improvements to uh, scroll view and auto layout. In iOS 11, uh, Apple introduced two new layout guides that are for scroll view only and it is to do the difference between the area defining the content of your scroll view and the frame of your scroll view. So you have UI scroll view dot content layout guide and UI scroll view dot frame out layout guide. And those are two layout guides defining the frame region of a scroll view and the whole content of the content view of a region. So the good example they've done uh, in um, in the Watson and Coco Touch, for example, is they were saying like, when you zoom out, we want to make sure that when you release your zoom out gesture, so your pinch to your pinch out gesture, that the photo rests in the middle of the content view. And now they, they said, oh, we remember a couple of years ago, we spent a third of a dub dub session explaining how to do this. Now it is done in a one liner. So if you do a lot of fun key stuff with uh, calculation between the frame and the content size and the content uh, area of a scroll view, now you can do that even faster and with less code using auto layout. Do you have any comments about uh, some of the stuff you remember of you've used recently with a UI kit that is quite neat? Hmm. I mean, listening to this as someone who mostly developed like back in the day of uh, iOS 3, 4, 5, 6, like those were mostly when I was the most active, I would say. Um, it sounds like UI kit development has gotten a lot more complicated with having to worry about all the different screen sizes and form factors that your app supports and it doesn't sound very fun uh like back in the day we used to mostly be able to worry about rotating between two orientations and even that was kind of a struggle sometimes and now the thought of having to do it to many many devices sounds like you have a lot less time to actually make your app good and usable because you're spending all of it on this silly layout stuff I understand. I understand your point there. Um, if you take into consideration that most of my experience was like starting iOS six and up to this day, um, I've seen the evolution, and that's quite uh, interesting because it feels to me that we had a couple of years up to like iOS nine, iOS, I would say even iOS ten. But even in starting iOS ten, you felt that UI kit as a UI framework started to kind of slow down. It matured a bit. There's a lot of uh, rusty corners let's put it this way but it feels that the improvement that they add are like really like well positioned like this year we had drag and drop to drive this new behavior but if you build a day-to-day -day app that you want a basic ui it feels that every year they're improving to make sure that because now we support a lot of different screens uh yes you're like you said in the ios 7 8 and even 9 days it was a kind of a pain in the butt to make sure that you support all the available configuration especially uh when they added size classes but throughout the recent releases ui kit always like remove some of those pain points one by one you might want them to be removed like faster but if we kind of spoil my uh next year's episode if we were talking about ios 12 deployment target uh Still, again, this year, like with iOS 12, like Apple is just like fixing a couple of the mistakes. A good example of that is the auto layout performance. Like they were using, they were asking the devs to use auto layout a lot, while you did not realize that auto layout performance sucks really bad uh, if you have complex layout. So again and again, they are building tools to make your life easier and really make you focus 
on your user experience while not having too much time and not too much need to focus on those different specifications of devices. Uh, they do that while making sure you don't need to write like you don't need to spend a third of a dub dub session trying to doing something simple that now can be done in a one liner, for example. Yeah, I mean, I, it, I, it's only coming to mind because we've been doing a lot of managing our clients recently because people all the time refuse to test their responsive layout stuff. Uh, like we build websites in a responsive manner and we tell them, okay, you're going to have to upload this kind of banner so that it looks good on all devices. And our clients basically test it in the desktop and they never test it on mobile and it looks like shit on mobile and they blame it us basically for not doing it perfectly because they uploaded an incorrect image and we can add more complex tools to our interface to help them uh, specify things that make it display correctly in all form factors but the fact is if they weren't testing it before they're not really going to test it now that we've given them even more bobbles and switches to mess with to make it look good they weren't doing it when it was just check your damn image in both form factors right so for me like I mean, there's a part of me which is like, well, actually just changing the screen size of the iPhone, period, was a mistake. And therefore, they should correct <laughs> oh, that no. mistake. Oh, no. Are we? No. no but no, I'm not no. going down that route right now. But please, no. Part of me really misses like the fact that you could do pixel-perfect UI back in the day on the iPhone. And you could design perfect 320 by 480 canvas you want. And... It was really fast to implement because you were going to hard code those pixel values more than uh, more often than not. And it was going to take very little time to implement and it was going to be great. And now you are like throwing away tons of time to make a UI that actually fits in all of these scenarios when you could just be making your app great instead. And I realized that if you have like a team of lots and lots of people, like probably those People are working on different tasks and therefore you can continue to make your app big. But as an independent app developer, like it, this sounds like a major headache and pain in the ass. And I'm very happy that I don't have to do it. And to be honest, I think probably designing stuff in CSS would be less trouble than having to mess with all of this bullshit. Wow. Some controversial opinion tonight. I mean, not really because React native sort of agrees with me and they just basically say well just oh, use flexbox that works happening? in css oh my goodness what's happening okay oh, we're, we're continuing no 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 no. i'm not actually going I, I had another tonight. point but it's not going to be very long uh okay, on the topic of on. drag and drop how reliable have you found it in the last year of using an iphone because i find it very unreliable and it constantly fucks up all the time that's a good point. I would say that what I've seen that I like from custom implementation, I think uh, a good example of that is the and the YouTube one, which is not perfect either, but is the fact that on the default one, uh, you need to kind of press and hold and then wait, and then it's like long press, and then it detects, oh, you want to drag and drop, so now it's able to do. Uh, it's able to do it compared to the one in YouTube and uh, the one uh, a lot of apps, uh, including some of our apps that work. It just like instead you have a region of the cell where you just like you know when you tap there, it moves automatically, and you know because you see that this region is tappable for that exact reason. So I understand the trade-off that Apple uh, did there, 
but to me i think it will uh send a better user message if you see where i'm going with this where like you tap this area it does the right thing you tap outside maybe you need to then press an old and do it well that that's not really the point i was trying to make like often i try to reorder stuff in overcast and like i'm not sure if this is a drag and drop bug or an overcast bug so maybe i'm just but this is the only app i use drag and drop in basically Me and too. that's the only app i do right and i try to reorder stuff and then a second later like my order is immediately reset to what it was before. And I'm like, why do I even fucking bother reordering this shit if it's going to dis- destroy itself right afterwards? And like YouTube is an app where I would actually use the drag and drop if they had implemented it with the iOS thing. And unfortunately, they sort of have like both implemented. They have their reordering drag and drop, which is separate from actual native iOS drag and drop, which is there, except it only supports dragging links into other applications, which is fucking bonkers. Yeah, I see what you what you mean with this. Um, the only reason, the only place I use it is the in the uh, watch uh, later list, which is for the order purposes. <laughs> so, uh, and that's I wouldn't say it's a problem per se, but maybe it's because I don't do that much productivity on my iPad. Oops. Well, it, but, it it just bothers the inconsistency in my system, but at the same time, I'm kind of happy that they haven't implemented it correctly because at least their drag and drop doesn't fuck up my reorders of a second after I do it. And apparently workflow has reorder issues as well. So I don't know. <laughs> Not workflow, sorry, shortcuts. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm just very skeptical of the reliability of the drag and drop thing. And like, I wish more apps would support it, but at the same time, like, if it doesn't work, I'm not really blaming anyone for not supporting it. Yeah, my point about iPad productivity was not to make fun of iPad productivity, but more to say that uh, I don't use that much drag and drop between apps. I, I maybe use it once in every balloon. So uh, the limitation that it is not uh, uh, per, uh, it is only in app and on the phone to me is like, for, like you said, for Vocast, it makes sense. You do it and voila, and that's it. Yep. I don't disagree with this, and I am more productive than you on the iPad, I believe. So there you go. But I, wow. I have a whole iPad productivity rant uh, in, in the oven for a future episode. So look forward to that. Okay, good. So we'll move to our favorite next frame, iOS framework, and it is called Coordinator. Yay, Coordinator. Yay. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so if you recall last year... Uh, Especially with iOS 10. iOS 10 was quite beautiful for Cardinal. This new uh, NS persistence... Oh, I always forget the, the, the funky name for it. But the, this kind of a one object, and you have a full Cardinal stack the way it should be. Uh, object, which I think it's NS persistence store controller, something like that. I forget its name. I was quite big in iOS 10. And so now uh, in iOS 11, one of the big integration, uh, which to me is a... I wouldn't say it's useless, but it is useful for certain type of apps is the core Sportlight integration. So the way they've done it is before iOS 11 and even some uh, Mac version, a uh, macOS version, you would have to do the work yourself. So you would have to store your data in core data and then talk to core Sportlight, send it all the data and then do the diffing and all of that stuff to make sure it's all, all up to date. And also if you were using it on the Mac where the... I think it's like Spotlight Engine, its previous name. uh, That old integration was based on files, on the the file system. Uh, So this uh, core Spotlight is more kind of a a database, so you don't need to store file on uh, on the file system of your app to make sure that it works. Uh, 
So uh, what they've done more or less is if you go into your uh, model editor UI and you can define which uh, proper which attributes of your entity in your model that can be uh, indexed by Spotlight, and also it does mean uh, that with, uh, you need to define a specific name for your entity. So imagine in the example they are giving an apple is like they have a kind of photo i photo like or photos that app like app and then define that the tags or the, the photo name is indexed by uh core spotlight so when you search for example like my life in paris or like paris 23 which was was is one of the name of photos it just shows up and then opens your app and one of the nice thing is when it opens your app from spotlight it is transformed into a user activity which apple this api they love it they did every time they try to use more kind of end of the uh interaction between different parts of the us or different apps uh they tend to rely a lot on user activity and i think this is one of the api that they've designed a couple of years back and it is now quite paying off because they add every release of the us they add a new feature on top of it and for example uh, they use the same uh the same method on NSR UI application delegate called application continue user activity restoration handler, where you get a specific user activity. You can fetch the information from core, the course part like keys to get your uh, object URL. So you can then just go back into your core data stack and try to find the object and do what you should be doing. Like for example, in the app there, the mode, just showing the, showing the photo that you search for in core spotlight. Uh, in the a bit more boring part, but quite uh, interesting if you love database optimization, they've added a new indexing API, and obviously uh, the main benefit to it is they added R3 indexes compared to the binary indexes that they only add right now on uh, Core Data and SQLite. Those indexes are, they say, about 10% faster. So of course, if you have a shit ton of data, 10% is always good. It's not a big huge, but you always take this small chunk of more speed uh, and user will like that. Uh, also, there's now two new attribute attribute types that are natively supported and handled by Coreta, UUID and URL, which some of them I would like to use right away in our app. That would have been saved me some time, but uh, I digress. And last but not least, it's, uh, is the new, the, the last new feature I want to talk about Coreta tonight is called persistent history tracking. And this is where they, they are describing where your, all your data is stored in Coreta for your app, but you have an app, you might have a couple of extensions and those extensions, here the, the example they give, it's kind of a, a social network where all your data is stored in Coreta more or less. So you have a share extension, you could have a photo editing extension and all of that can modify the SQLite database that is driving that is driving your core data stack on different core data stacks for each extension. So of course they're pointing to the same file in the end, but the core data stack that is driving your application might not know what happened in the background. And in the past, for you and your app to get this information, you had to do a full like a typical full like that table database can. So you need to kind of reload everything to make sure that everything is back in memory. And now with this history tracking, Core Data knows like who did what. And then it can tell you, okay, you're at like version one of the database. Now because of the changes, there's like three or four more, three or more transactions and I know what to do. So I can give you, you can replay this history and now you don't need to do a full table scan to just be up to date on your data. It is something I haven't used yet. Uh, it's 
something that is is sounds promising in uh, when it is demoed by Apple and when you look at the uh, code example, but it is something I would like to play to see how could it improve our Corda stack. I'm unsure if it would be useful for the type of our, our usage that we do uh, in my uh, in the work at work in our application because we mainly have the iOS app. We don't have extension modifying the same persistent store coordinator uh, persistent source excuse me. so it doesn't need that coordination but it is quite interesting that if we were to add extension or maybe like if you have a phone app and then you want to exchange data with the watch app and all that stuff could be something interesting to look at okay um when i started to talk about ios 11 i did mention uh i know excuse me during the Yannick's big tangent about UI and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I did mention that I feel in the recent years that a lot of Apple frameworks are kind of maturing. They're in the maturing phase. They, like for a couple of years, especially since the iOS 7 redesign, a lot of stuff has changed. So they modified the frameworks and modified the frameworks and modified it. There's a lot of big changes. And I would say since like, like, like this, like iOS 10, 11, and now even if we're not talking about 12, even about 12, it feels to me there's, we are in the maturing phase. So there's not that much big new changes in frameworks that you use to build iOS apps, but there's a lot more, there's a lot more new frameworks that have been added every year. And I think iOS 11 is one of those big years. Um, some example of those frameworks are, and I, those, the first two ones are frameworks we've talked in great length in other episodes. I'm not going to talk too much about them, but ARKit and CoreML, so using machine learning to learn about your data and of course uh, augmented reality um, you can build new users experience and you have fun i think you can get more information about that and uh, yannick and i discussed in great length about it in the past uh, other types of example uh omkit got a lot more a lot more apis uh in ios 11 and apple provided the depth map api to use the depth map information from your photo camera What's interesting about most of those frameworks, and after that I'll uh, I'll uh, mention in more details two more, is usually those frameworks when Apple releases new data, I, I like to call those data types because this is our experience type. It's like Apple provides you new APIs to do something new in the app that is not related to just building the UI or building the user experience of a typical iOS app. Uh, ARKit is an example, or OMKit. Like, there's a lot, we've seen a lot of nice OMKit app that is not the OM app that does different, that thinks differently than Apple's strategy for OMKit while still being based on OMKit and giving different user experience. Those apps usually, I think they are rarer, they're rarer to wait for a year to be implemented because they know that if they are using those frameworks day one when the new OS gets released, they have a higher chance and they become a good candidate to be promoted on the App Store because Apple is looking for those types of apps uh, to be promoted when a new OS releases. So I'm mentioning those frameworks on the passing, mainly because I do believe that if you have a need for them, you should have already started to implement them. But don't forget that you might have you might have forgotten about them. Uh, a good example could be CoreML. Is we there was a lot of big push about AI and since Apple introduced that, but you might have forgotten that you could improve data processing. For example, you, there's ways you could improve your own app right now. And some of those frameworks could be 
useful to you. Do you think I could use CoreML to identify photos of server motherboards and find out if the Chinese government has put a little <laughs> spy chip on it? I will not answer this question, but it's funny they mentioned that. Uh, one of the demo I've seen uh, this year at, um, oh, why am I blanking on the name? Uh, Alconf. Oh my God, that was hard. Uh, one of the demo from IBM, because IBM is a big uh, AI machine learning uh, company these days. And a big uh, Swift wh- company too. It is a big Swift company too. They were doing exactly what you said, ignoring oh the troll about the, uh, the, 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 the chip and everything, but they were demoing an app that uh, repair people could use to detect whether a part is broken inside a plane or uh, a train and stuff like that. So they could like bring up uh, by identifying the part, they could bring up the repair manual. They could maybe give you an idea of oh, this one is broken because it has like this discoloration stuff like that. That was quite interesting. And their demo, they were using Arduino boards, so that's why I made the link with the the Chinese chip and the Arduino. <laughs> that's really funny. <laughs> I know. Uh, my two examples that I want to go through quickly in the new frameworks, uh, because the first one I think is something you could uh maybe start thinking about building new apps now that most people are up to date on either iOS 11 or even to even 12 is core NFC. This is where I feel it's in the new experiences. Uh, it is quite nice after having multiple iPhones with NFC readers in it that Apple give us access to the reading capabilities of our iPhone. Sadly, there's a, a lot of limitation. Like I said, it is tag reading only. So there is, you cannot rewrite a tag by tapping it, for example. That is uh, something quite popular on Android phones. And also, you cannot do card emulation the same way that Apple Pay is doing it. So you cannot start like writing, writing your own like kind of a NFC transit path because you know that your tra- transit agency uses NFC or RFID stuff. So you cannot use that. So it's really like you know there's a tag already programmed software in the world. You put your phone next to it. Uh, and it reads it. I also want to point out that card emulation is not allowed on Android either. Oh, I thought it was. Well, if it is, it's new. But when we went to Google I.O., they made a very clear, because we went to the NFC session in 2011, uh, they made it very clear that card emulation is reserved for Google applications only. Ooh. Which okay, basically that... means wallet. <laughs> then my bad. Maybe, you know what? You will laugh at me, but maybe I'm mixing it up with BlackBerry. And... The reason why I'm thinking about that is when I was working for one of our carriers here, I know that some of the phone that we were selling was able to do card emulation, and I forgot if it's Android or um, BlackBerry. So it could be BlackBerry. Yeah, I I think in that time you were there, uh, Android definitely did not have card emulation. Then my bad. But yes, so um, one of the small downsides, I think at this point, uh, like a year after iOS 11, um, more people are having phones that will support uh, reading card, uh, reading, my goodness, doing tag reading. So, of course, if you want to depend, if you want to create a new app that depends on reading NFC tags in the world, having a lot, a bigger customer base with phones that can support this capability is quite interesting because Core NFC is only supported on iPhone 7 and 7 Plus and up. So, if you have an iPhone 8, 8 Plus or 
iPhone 10 or the new uh, 10s, 10s Max or 10R, uh, this is working quite fine. Kind of a spoiler alert for next year. Uh, I'm sure next year I will be talking about Core FC again because the new phone this year have an even better capability. They can read tags in the background because the limitation that uh, Core FC had when it first launched was that you need to be your app needs to be in the foreground. The second your app goes in the background, it kills the reading session. Another new framework that it's not really a framework, but it is kind of a new experience is called Music Kit. So Music Kit is combined of two things. It is combining new APIs on the store kit front and com and it, that is combined with a full web API to access Apple's music subscription service inside your own app. The main two things you can do is access the Apple Music catalog or you can access the user profile and all of the the nice like user base functionality of Apple Music. So like playlist recommendation, the for you tabs, all of that stuff. All of that data is available to you as a Apple Music app developer. As with on any other privacy data, the Apple Music subscription information is requires user authorization. So you need to tell uh you need to, your apps to ask for the user to the user access to their Apple Music account. And of course there's three different uh, capabilities that they are called that you can ask. Of course just accessing and having music catalog playback. So having access to the catalog and playback. Adding data to the iCloud music library of a user. And last but not least is fetching the subscription status of a user. So all of this requires, of course, the user authorization. And last but not least, um, with the new APIs in StoreKit, you can also ask uh, your users, uh, you know, promote, uh, excuse me, promote Apple Music uh, onboarding and registering uh, inside the apps. Those APIs are a bit older, uh, but it seems that in iOS 11, they are making a great comeback. Um, but what was launched at the same time on iOS 7 was really the Apple Music API. So I won't, won't go into too much detail of what the API itself is and how does it work, but think about it. It's more or less the same API, more or less the same API that Spotify offers for a platform. So you can become a developer. You can access it. Uh, you, to, there's two important things to note though about this API is first of all, you need to create your own a developer token that is based on the JSON web token. Uh, and also, if you want to have access to the user data, you accessing to require the API requires a specific Apple Music user token. And that token is only available through the StoreKit API. So you really need to have an iOS app that is asking for a specific device to provide it with a token. And then you can start doing API REST calls. Uh, yeah, it's an REST API, if I recall correctly. But yes, you can do those uh, normal HTTP request calls uh, to the Apple Music API. Do you know if there's any way to upload music to the iCloud Music Library of your users? That part was a bit unclear when I look at the documentation. Uh, so I don't really know. I mean, I, it's probably no, because... I would probably have heard about it, but like that's the number one thing I want out of iOS right now is to be able to add music without needing my computer to add it via iTunes. 
Yeah, the, the, the one they were mentioning about adding music to the iCloud music library, it felt to me that it was like like you're just putting it in your Apple music library because every time they were mentioning it, it was not uploading stuff. They just saying like this asset from the API, you should put it in the user's asset library, more or less. Yeah, that's not good enough. <laughs> yeah, so the name of it is a bit weird. I'm sure that this name predates uh, Apple music itself. So that's why it's called iCloud Music Library, not just Apple Music Library. Uh, but uh, it could be something that I can uh, look at for the next episode. Maybe one day I'll be able to make my iPad CD player happen. Yes, maybe <laughs> one day. I'm not sure it will happen, but... Please support my Kickstarter. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll end uh, today's episode with... Um, the same type of API, not the same type, I'll fix that statement. So if you recall correctly, in the iOS 10 episode, we ended with one API that arrived quite late in the iOS uh, life cycle, which is, was the, what's the name again? The uh, UI, the SK Store Review Controller, which was only added in iOS 10.3. Last functionality that was, that will require, that might require some changes on your app, especially if you're on a new app, is AirPlay 2, which was shipped recently in uh, iOS oh 7.4. <laughs> yes, oh God. I forgot about this. <laughs> yeah, so I'll end this episode tonight by saying that just a quick note about AirPlay 2. So yes, it did ship on uh, in the iOS 11 timeline. It nearly slipped. Uh, but depending on the type of audio apps you're building, you might be affected by those changes. You might need to, uh, for some people, rewrite uh, your audio engine. For some, uh, you might get it for free, depending if you are having your own custom uh, audio player or you're using the system one, depending on the functionality you want to offer. So, of course, AirPlay 2 is a faster protocol than what AirPlay 1 is. So, sending events like the play pause, like the remote events, uh, they call it. Um, those happen faster because of the new underlying technology um, where everything is more uh, segmented and you just don't send like six seconds or like it was 10 seconds with Airplay 1 where you just like sense, send like a 10 second, a 10 second or six second uh, portion of the audio file and the, the Airplay will ask you again in six seconds to give you it. Uh, it's more like a real live streaming, which is quite nice. Or also you can just like send it and then have, uh, AirPlay 2 has fun with it. Also, uh, the multi-room support is quite uh, interesting. I don't have another AirPlay 2 device except my Apple TV. So I cannot really test AirPlay 2 uh, multi-room support. But all of this is say is if you were, if you are on the app, you might already be bashing your head on your desk trying to support AirPlay 2 or maybe not because uh, your audio players is the same one as the system one and it comes for free. Yeah, I know DJ apps in particular have been a little bit grumpy about AirPlay 2 uh, because, I, I mean, AirPlay is never going to be ideal for DJ apps because they pretty much require or should have immediate feedback and even old AirPlay was on a delay so you couldn't actually hear it in real time but if you were like in a booth somewhere then you could dj and like within a few seconds people on the other side could hear it and if you had monitors and everything it was fine uh now because they have to move to like this weird live streaming thing 
you're live streaming stuff that doesn't exist yet or your effects can't be done. Anyway, it's real complicated. People really hate this uh, in the DJ software scene. Uh, and I'm assuming this just means they're going to drop AirPlay completely. Like they're already mad about the headphone jack not being there, which I can understand. <laughs> I can understand for that particular use case because like, yes, latency is still a little thing. It's just the Beats headphones have managed to mask it mostly. Uh, but like music games and DJ software don't work over Bluetooth. And uh, headphone jack was a big knock on that. And now AirPlay is another knock to DJ apps. Uh, so they're not very happy, but just something to take into consideration. That's okay. You just need to buy the wise uh, lightning splitter, and then you're okay. Isn't I, I thought the wise splitter didn't work with uh, the headphone adapter. Oh, I think then there was a specific one that is audio jack, and then another lightning port. It, like it's that. fiddly, basically, is what we're saying. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. It's like USB C. Oh my god! Oh, I, okay, I I need to add an asterisk here and say the oh. rumors that the iPad Pro is getting a USB C port make me so sad. Imagine all the headaches people have on MacBooks coming to iPads. It would be a disaster. Okay, I'm done. <sighs> yes, you're done. So wrap it up. All right. So if you want to look at the show notes for this episode to consult various documentation documents about the APIs we talked about on this episode, uh, you can go to limitlesspossibility.net slash 98, or you can find all of our episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. We have a huge back catalog of episodes to listen to, and we are creeping towards episode 100. That is true. Yeah. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, you can do so at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. Or you can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Nicolivier at Lucanoch. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in epi- at episode 100 minus one. Mm. Let's, let's start this countdown this way. I love this. Wow.